From the Clock Tower Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we explore the journey of Christian conversion. In this episode, we will discuss chapters 1 through 5 of The Great Divorce. And, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, we are going to spoil the first five chapters. So, you're welcome to pause, go read, come back, or jump in with us right now. Do you have any housekeeping before we jump in? I don't, but... Except that we're starting a new book, yeah. and, I feel, and I feel like we kind of been just jumping from one to the next without any fanfare. I don't know if it's fanfare that we need. Did <laughs> <laughs> you play a little trumpets? Or what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. We're starting the Great Divorce, and the Great Divorce is a lot of people's favorite, and in a way, it's kind of my favorite too because I can never really commit myself to true favorites. Because like in Paralandra, which is also one of my favorites. Um, Whatever fruit you're eating. Yeah, it's the most delicious fruit. And so when I'm reading The Great Divorce, it's definitely my favorite. Okay. Where does The Great Divorce come in the chronology of C.S. Lewis's writings? Do you know? You know, I don't, I don't really know when he's writing this. It sounds like it's a little later, but if you would like to know, and if you ever have this question about the chronology of when Lewis is writing things, uh, Pints with Jack on their website has created this interactive timeline of everything that C.S. Lewis wrote. Okay, so I just looked this up and it says The Great Divorce 1945. So it was right after that hideous strength, uh, screw tape letters, space trilogy, all those ones. But so before, this is later on a little before bit. Before Narnia, after those other books that we've, we've already covered. Yeah, it looks like the three that came after were Mere Christianity, The Four Loves, and The World's Last Night, and other essays, which I have never heard of. It's one of those uh, essay collection books, which they're good to read. I just have a, I have a book with like every single one of his essays. It looks like an encyclopedia. Alex, would you like to read the summary today? Of course. Lewis finds himself walking in a gray town at twilight. He absentmindedly joins the queue at a bus stop where he observes petty quarreling and mean-spiritedness from the other people waiting for the bus. On the bus, Lewis interacts with a few passengers from whom he learns that he and they are in the afterlife. The bus takes flight and climbs into the brightening haze until alighting in a beautiful landscape so solid that by comparison, Lewis and the other passengers are revealed to be ghosts. A concourse of bright, solid people arrives on foot from the mountains to meet the passengers, and Lewis observes the peculiar interactions between the ghosts and their angelic welcomers. Perfect. Do you want to start off with a theme that maybe stood out to you? Yeah, for me, it's, it's kind of a complex theme, so I'm just going to call it perspective. And this is something we've seen in other books, but when Lewis arrives in the solid landscape, he sees from his perspective, this solidity in the trees and the grass. 
And then his perspective changes to where the grass and the landscape that he's in is the new normal or reference frame. And then by comparison, he's just a ghost. And I think that change in perspective is kind of a Lewisian theme throughout all his works. And it will help us understand some of the conflicts that we're going to see in these angel and ghost interactions, because it really is understanding your reality through the windows of your own eyes the subjectivity of that experience and allowing the mental flexibility and the humility required to get into a perspective outside yourself. And so that perspective, I think, will carry us through this book in, in its entirety, but it's especially something that we need to learn how to shift with in these first five chapters. If you stay in your your own perspective, your subjective experience as a ghost driving up there and flying up there in the bus and getting out of the bus, the grass is like diamond and it's so much more substantial than yourself. And then it's the flipping of perspective to now seeing the grass and reality as real, as, as what reality actually is and seeing yourself as less substantial. It's going into the new reference frame. This is what happened like to that. Ransom as he goes into the heavens and the whole Ransom trilogy and why we called it the Ransom trilogy and not the space trilogy was so that we can learn the change in perspective. It's not us looking into the empty void of space, but we're just blotches and almost imperfection. The, the planets are like these smudges on this ethereal and heavenly plane and so to kind of have that change in, in reference, this happens in the last battle as well. They come to the, the new Narnia to Aslan's country, realizing that it's, they recognize it because they had been living in these shadow lands, this almost template of the real Narnia the whole time. But it wasn't, be, they didn't recognize it because they had already been in the real thing. They recognized it because they had been living in a, in a, step down in dimension. They'd been living on the map and now they're on the landscape. And so to kind of see the world that way, I think is just an important part of what our earthly experience is. We've been here, we accept the world the way that it's presented to us. And to get fooled into thinking what we're experiencing is reality and everything beyond us is just some abstract imaginary uh, projection, I think is the source of most of the misleading and damaging philosophies of our time. Uh, the theme that I saw was just around self. And as they start out in the gray town, and as you see just human nature at its basest form, just creating the division and the quarrels. And the I think the phrase you used from your summary was mean-spiritedness. And then also how taking that selfishness or that selfish perspective up into heaven and how that Im influences every single conversation with the angels and how the angels are imploring them just to get out of their own way. And we'll obviously see how much success the angels have as they work with these different people. But it was a reminder to me to think of is my, ourselves are always getting in the way. How can we, how can we forget ourselves?
I mean, your theme of self and my theme of perspective, one of the ways they work in work together. And this is something that you and I talk a lot about in just our normal friendship is you can understand most people better if you allow, instead of seeing other people's behavior as irrational, seeing it as rational from their paradigm. Hmm. And so that we're going to get thrust into these kind of irrational interactions. But if you realize that these ghosts, the thing that's keeping them in that hellish state is their inability to see th anything from a different perspective than the windows of their own eyes. Excellent. Let's take a break and we'll jump in. Welcome back. So we start out in the gray, rainy town. Some of my favorite highlights from the way Lewis describes this place was the night seems to be coming, this perpetual evening. And everything is just dreary and wet. And there's no, and later on he uses this really cool line when he sees the faces of the ghosts in the bus when the light hits them. And he said, their faces, instead of being full of possibility, were full of impossibility. And that line to me, is, it's, it just seems like this dreary town full of no possibility. What did you get from that? You know, they're stuck in this world where they can create anything from their imagination. And it doesn't have any substance, but it's, it gets, it does whatever they think that they need it to do. It doesn't, it doesn't keep, keep the rain, the rain out. out. Yeah. yeah. But so I, I think that's important to realize that like when we try to, <laughs> I remember Tinadrill laughing at Ransom's idea of creativity and any of this idea of creation that comes or is um, solely from our ourselves is almost like we can pretend to be devils, but we can't really pretend to be angels because we can't. Uh, and, and, and even the angels, maybe we just can't pretend to be God. We can't create things. We can mold things. We can get, um, we can receive. And then with the gifts that we receive, we can make the, make what we get into something. We can manipulate it. I guess we can turn our five talents into 10, as long as we don't just bury them in the ground. <laughs> but if we try to pretend that we can create from nothing something substantial we're fooling ourselves and so a lot of us you know get stuck in and this is this happens to me pretty frequently where i think i need to just like pull myself up by my bootstraps and figure something out by, of my own merit and especially when I'm in dark places, you know, whether it's dark places of faith or lack of faith, or even things just aren't working out for me for whatever goals I've projected my own future to accomplish. And this idea that I can make something meaningful without divine assistance, hmm. that's just been true to, true to my life. We can grow steaks in the lab. Don't you want to eat one of those? <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Lab meat. 
<laughs> Alex, my wife. So, so I have Alex, my friend and podcast host, and then I have Alex, my wife. So I, I often refer to Alex as Alex the wife. But she the other day was telling me, uh, she was like, do you really, is there any part of you that wants to eat something grown in a lab? <laughs> She's like, even with the little information you have on how it's done and what the final product is, I was like, no, there's just nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's just like one of the, you can't really put words to it, but everybody kind of feels the same thing, I think. <laughs> I've had this conversation <laughs> with more than just you, Dan, but like this idea of like, you know, lobsters are just water bugs. So why don't you eat crickets? Like, well, yeah, <laughs> we could be this fall victim to the spirit of the age and, and, um, deconstruct it to that sort of situation. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I can't explain to you why they're different, but I like lobster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I, too much of a tangent, but <laughs> just watch out. We, whatever we're making of ourselves. Well, I, even in that <laughs> context, we're not making anything of ourselves. Like even, what are you making the lab meat out of? You know, the, the raw material of the earth, we can't really create anything. Uh, maybe we can sort of pretend to create matter by combining energy. I don't know if anybody has ever done that, the, the backward. Well, yeah, that's what nuclear fusion is, but, um, you get such a little product through so so much crazy energy usage. It's, it reminds me of Lewis trying to lift up the leaf, and, yeah. almost, and maybe he moved it a little bit. We don't know, but that the reality of the material of eternity is something that we really can't affect, hmm. and so we kind of need to yield to. It was interesting the reaction that the ghosts had when the bus comes into view. And they see the driver who's, uh, you know, it's their first, it's your first vision of the angelic uh, personages, right? Coming to pick them up. And he's swatting away the gross smoke from the town as he comes in. And they're all angry. Mm -hmm. uh, look at him. Look, look how uh, pretentious he looks or whatever. Um, it is interesting when we let ourselves be offended by someone else coming in who isn't playing inside of the same paradigm that we are. Yeah. It's like when, when you see somebody with crippling anxiety and depression, if you haven't experienced that, but you see the burden it is on someone else, you're both living in the same reality, but that other person is carrying this massive weight on them. And that's... Um, Anyways, save me here. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting that you did the perspective the perspective shift in both directions. I think that's great. So you you see when you're the person who's maybe experiencing something like the crippling anxiety, you could see other people who are walking around carefree, driving a bus carefree, you know, like this bus driver, and um, and get offended that they're not conforming to your perspective of reality and becoming an equal insofar as your projection of equality has already been defined in your mental language. And so that becomes this, it's like an intrusion on what you're trying to reassure yourself is reality. And then mm -hmm. this is this data point that just does not conform. And it's a, either a call to get outside yourself or to be angry and see that intrusion as hostile. Hmm. So 
then looking at it from the other way, like you did, is maybe looking at somebody who's experiencing a more negative paradigm of reality than you are. And I feel this sometimes to say there's an SNL skit of this woman who is a, seeing a, a therapist and says that she's afraid of being buried alive. <laughs> and the therapist just says, well, stop it. That's irrational. Just stop it. And it, this gets funny because you can't just tell people in that state of mind to stop it. Yeah, it might be irrational, but it's affecting them. And our, our world and our lived experience is not so tied to objective reality like we think. And so you can't just say to somebody, stop it. But in a real way, maybe that is the goal, to help people just stop it and to realize that maybe the things that are so negative in our life, um, the difficulty, and, and it's funny, I, I misquoted the scripture of Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, so Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light in objective reality in our subjective realities, letting go of those abstract burdens of our concern for the future, of this helplessness of not being able to control everything about the meaning of our lives and our relationships feels heavy, feels burdensome. And taking off the yoke that we've made for ourselves and the burden that we've imagined for ourselves requires that we do kind of this press and push it off of our shoulders. Granted, we're gonna we're doing it with the purpose of letting it go and drop to the floor, but that activation energy of taking that step and tearing the, our burdens away from our ego is painful. Yes, and so painful it's like grassy daggers in our in our ghosty feet. <laughs> Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> grassy <laughs> daggers in our ghosty feet, <laughs> and it has to be ghosty for the record. <laughs> So he meets a man on the bus, uh, the communist, who he is the perpetual victim. You know, the, his education wasn't right. His dad didn't give him enough allowance. His girlfriend was great until she had these monogamistic views and, and was bourgeois mean about money tendencies. Too. And yeah. yeah, like just everything all the way up. And then I love that he goes, and then I threw myself under a bus and see if those like starts <laughs> like what? And the guy doesn't even know. He just keeps on going. <laughs> uh, what did you find instructive about this character? Well, he wasn't, he was pretty sure of himself. You know, what he seemed to be was one of the clevers from the Pilgrim's Regress, somebody who had everything figured out. Yeah. And anytime he contended with something in his process of trying to be a draft dodger and, and trying to prove that he was getting the short side and people weren't appreciating his genius like they should have, it seemed like the one thing that he didn't do was consider somebody else's perspective. And maybe he just hadn't made anything of his life. And he was just kind of this pathetic and cowardly avoider of responsibility. That never seemed to even approach his mind. I'm not sure if in his earthly life he, he flirted with that humility ever, but he seemed to have really settled in this surety of his own ego in hell. And um, you can see that that perpetual attitude of defending oneself can become this vicious cycle. 
it starts feeding on itself. And in order for that to be true, the next time somebody slights you, and I'm doing air quotes here, which might just be, you know, trying to help you out of this, this trough and tell you the hard truth and really the thing that you need to hear in order to keep the lie going, you're going to have to say that they're being unfair to you as well. It's interesting that his pride is driving him from being a fan of communism and then Russia. And then when Russia kind of aligns too much with democratic governments during World War II, he shifts to Switzerland is now the ideal. It feels like pride can drive you to changing your position and your allegiances to protect your own ego. And humility can also drive you to change your allegiances and to move along a political spectrum or whatever other spectrum you want to consider. But both can drive you, but the direction is going to be very different. Yeah, when you have the cognitive dissonance of your own perspective confronting data from the real from the outside world that conflicts with it, you're invited either to change to the outward reality or to imagine and to force all of your perceptions into the reality that you already established as your own perspective. So it's that that's the perspective shift that we're confronted with in all of these interactions is, yeah, there's the story that you're telling, the narrative of your story and your life, the way you want to see it. And if you keep trying to change the external realities or data points, evidences in order to fit your narrative, then everything about the outside world just becomes either an enemy or a friend, depending on whether it it supports your narrative and, and it becomes so relative based on what you want to be true. You actually eliminate your ability to see truth because everything is only as true as it corresponds with, you know, quote unquote, your truth. Hmm. And that pride will make you unable to ever experience something that's, that's freeing. It seems like it's, you're more free if you can have the power to change your external reality, to just conform with everything you want it to be, but it's the truth that will set you free. And when you realize you are a player in an objective reality, then you can start to see, like the serenity prayer says, the things that you can control and the things that you can't control and have the wisdom to understand the difference. And that's where now your choices make sense. But if you're the station, if the station, the train station is moving along with the train, then you, none of your motion ever really means anything and you can't ever get anywhere. Later he meets the, the man who's seems like he's on a hunt to bring back something real to the town so he can make money, <laughs> which is interesting because you live in a town where you can create anything with your mind. But he makes this interesting comment about how if there was actually something real that aligned everybody's greed or at least desires, yeah. then then that would bring together community and then you could have a police force and keep people in line, all this stuff. But what was interesting to me is in this hellish town, because they because they could just invent everything and they had no physical needs it led to this ex just it essentially infinite expansion away from each other 
that there was nothing holding each other together. And what I thought of is I just saw this dividing path in my mind of either charity brings us together and, and knits us together, knits our hearts together and forgiveness. But when you throw those out the window and the only thing that you need unites you is some desire or need or greed, um, well, welcome to the gray town, I guess. It, what this made me think of is um, Tolkien in the Silmarillion calls the mortality of humans compared to the immortality of the elves, the strange gift. The elves see that humans having this f um, finiteness to their lives, they have a need th that it becomes this almost this gift to them. Because it almost forces, the necessity forces them, despite their wills, to at least have to work together. Mm -hmm. And in our mortal lives, we have that assistance. We create community out of necessity, or at least out of necessity. But after, where there is no need, it's only our wills that will determine what we do. And charity is the only knitting, binding force. Without charity, we are nothing. And I like to see that as we doesn't exist. It's me against everybody else. Because if I don't need somebody and I don't have love, everybody else is a threat. You have that Thomas Hobbes line. Or no, it's uh, it's Jean-Paul Sartre is hell is other people. And But in the reality, well, that's true. But also what's true is heaven is other people. Because when we have no needs, now our desires are everything that determine the experience that we have with one another. And why right now in mortality, the skill of learning to desire the other, and if you want to put capital O other as Jesus being the other. Anyway, we've gone down this rabbit hole before as far as like the experience of consciousness and we can find grounding in the fact that other people exist outside of your own projection. It seems like every time lately you see a list of People talking about these are the core tenets of what makes somebody happy. And number one or number two on that list is relationships. That is where we find meaning and purpose and happiness. And so we're encouraged, and I think this is a very, very loud message, go and have relationships. But if you don't have the instruction and education, if you're not approaching it with charity and with the these Christian principles, then you're seeking a relationship and you, and this is too common. You see this happen a lot where people seek out a relationship for their benefit, right? And you're never going to build that meaningful relationship that actually gives you purpose and actually brings you happiness if it's just two people seeking to serve themselves. Let's take a break and we'll get to heaven hopefully soon. Welcome back. Alex pointed out that we are in on the outskirts of heaven. We're not quite there yet, but we're kind of there. I we guess are. I guess to those that are going to make it, it will might it will have seemed like heaven all along. That's right. <laughs> Even the gray town because it's it exists hypothetically, well, kind of in that same landscape. But the idea of like your whole story 
And what gives us meaning to our lives is the ebbs and flows, the human experience, even tragedies that happen in our lives. If we've learned from them, if we've experienced them emotionally in a healthy way, if somebody close to you and important to you dies and you're, you know, shaken by it, good. You should be. That's a, that's an evidence of the value of a relationship. Not that you should just go masochistically seeking out sorrowful experiences, but us experiencing the depth and breadth of a mortal life is kind of the idea. It's the, it's kind of the point. Not I, and I always get uncomfortable, like I'm trivializing people's experiences, but that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do is the more that we ha can experience. I mean, this is what Christ did in the garden and on the cross is experience the entirety of a human experience. And we see that as like, he suffered a lot and he, he won't, I, I don't think Christ's own personal narrative, which is what objective truth is, looks back at that as the, a tragedy. And that's, what's interesting about, you know, the fat ghost, right? The, uh, the, the guy that we see at, in chapter five, who the angel who comes down and, and just trying to get him to stay is trying to help him see that he was an apostate and his views, his open-minded type views of theology, um, were not honestly come by. He kind of went with the spirit of the age and what was popular. And he, he called uh, the, the ghost called it heroic. I was like, what was heroic about it? You just, it wasn't brave. You were doing it. What you knew would receive applause. And it's so funny how nowadays, I think we have this example, even more than Lewis ever did, where we see people pretending to do the brave thing, which, you know, funny enough, seems to align perfectly <laughs> with the spirit of our age and what will get applause and this idea of like real, the heroic victimhood. The angel changed his tactics several times with his friend, with Dick, trying to, or Dick was the angel, right? Yeah, because yes. he keeps saying, oh, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the angel changes his tactics several times with his friend. And, f and that kind of leads from first, he's trying to point out, hey, this, uh, like what you're talking about, the honest opinion argument. And he says, look, we, we were playing with loaded dice. Yeah. We, we, had, we had ideas of what we knew people wanted to hear. We had ideas of what we wanted to get from this pursuit. And so we apostatized in order, we lost our faith yeah. to do that. And when he realizes that's not going to work, he then pivots to, and that, that kind of leads down to just repent and believe. Can you just take everything else. I like that he says, we're not talking about, we've spent so much time in this esoteric place of talking about the, the line that he uses, crude salvationism. They've become unmoored so much from the basic tenets and teachings of Christ that the, the angel tries to pull them back to just, can you just repent and believe? Can you just follow me? Can you just trust me and that's it? Or can you just want happiness? Yeah. Anything to get him out of this perspective that he, he was right all along and he was 
sinlessly, you know, innocent for his dogmatic beliefs, his own personal dogmas, and thinking that there was some bravery in coming to these bold assertions in this because he actually believed it as if that were somehow absolving of any wrongdoing or, or intellectual sin. And I was, when I went through it the second time, I was like, what is, so I wanted to identify exactly what the angel says is the point at which even a sincerely believed heresy uh, is where it stops being innocent. And what he says is something, I, I think there's a phrase, but he says to, to drift without resistance. Hmm. along this path of another desire, which, and the desire was the basically claptrap from the Pilgrim's Regress, this, the, a, a town of people who are just willing to validate you because you fall in line so well with the spirit of the age, as if that is anything to be proud of. And it's like, yeah, we just started writing the papers that would get a, a good marks and we started to preach the things that would get applause. And if you just go along with that, it doesn't seem like a moment, a momentous choice. It's kind of like falling into the inner ring. You don't become trapped because somebody decided to confront or present to you some real evil thing to do, but sandwiched between two jokes is this very subtle temptation to go against honor, to go against what you know to be right. And it it'll be even more devious and more dangerous by its camouflage. And so for them, for these two, you know, the one who's the angel and then the ghost, for them it was this drifting without resistance to the natural pressures of society. Yeah, and the line the angel gives him that he is totally nonplussed and has no response for is you are free to drink, but you're not free to be dry. Well, yeah. And he's like, I have, I have nothing to, you know, I don't understand that. Um, yeah. Freedom does not mean you can participate in contradictions. Right. Once, and that's, that's what ultimately it feels like turns the ghost away is when the angel says, he, he implores him, just come with me. And the ghost says, sure. But when, when he's like, well, as long as I, uh, you got to promise me that I'll still have freedom of thought and that I'm not going to be tied to some objective truth, right? then I'll come along with you. And the ghost says, of course you can't have that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, you've enthroned the virtue of free inquiry, free inquiry. Yeah. And... And that's like enthroning the principle of thirst yeah, and not actually the purpose of thirst, the purpose of desire. Yeah. To hopefully seek, he doesn't know what he says. He says to seek hopefully is better than to arrive. And then the angel responds with such good logic. If you would, could never arrive, then how could you seek hopefully? Yeah. There would be nothing to really hope in. It can't be a joyful journey unless there's actually somewhere to to go. And because we sometimes need to learn how to motivate ourselves in the process of, you know, the thousand mile journey before we get there, I think we can get caught up in trying to make everything of value just so abstract 
And in that way, it loses all its foundation and will crumble. Like these types of attitudes, ideologies, philosophies, whatever you want to call them, just remind me so much of Jesus's warning not to build our houses on sand, that there needs to be a foundation. And when we do that turtles all the way down, that infinite regress of whether it's something spiritual or scientific, no matter what our belief system is, we're going to find that we can't really get down to the foundation. And so the authority that we decide to yield to becomes so important. It's not that we can come to this bedrock of complete understanding. Oh, now if I take all of particle physics and and regress down to the point of the fundamental forces, I can build my paradigm of reality on this bedrock of fundamental forces. All it takes is somebody to say, where did the fundamental forces come from? Where did gravity come from? Where did electromagnetic force come from and strong force? And it's like, oh, well, maybe we'll understand that someday. And you think then that will have bedrock in some objective reality that you can experience. I'm sorry, you can't. This is the phenomenology. You can't experience that objective reality in the way that you think. This is why screw tape doesn't want us really studying science. <laughs> exactly, because we'll realize that start believing things we can't see. That's right. We have to have faith to do that too. And so the rock upon which our structure needs to be built is the rock of Jesus. Now that's a yielding. You're you're still yielding in faith to something that you can't you can't really get down to the bottom of but we all have to yield. Eventually we have to give up our ego and our sense of individuality to some master. I'd prefer to yield to Jesus over the electromagnetic force. Well, when you find out personally, when you find out he's the electromagnetic force too, <laughs> that might be a little too abstract, but I don't think that it's untrue. I just, I don't know how that works. He did walk on water. I don't know how you could do that without some mastery over electromagnetic force. So, but I think to wrap, to, to put a bow on this interaction, uh, when he finally gets to, can you still desire happiness? And this, the spirit says, well, you know, like part of happiness is duty. And then his duty is to go back and help do a work among the, uh, do a work in hell. Yeah. And he'd rather be somebody important in hell than uh nobody in heaven i don't know uh yeah he'd rather he'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven yeah he he his sense of duty his idea of duty is that he is the source of the duty he has a duty too um <laughs> using this word duty is kind of inquiry funny <laughs> over and over <laughs> yeah um he is the source of this responsibility who's he responsible for to well himself Right. And you remember that's virtue has that issue in Pilgrim's Regress about where is the source of the rules? And he, and he learns from wisdom. Oh, it, it's this internal responsibility. These rules play on each other and, and they exist in this almost abstract way. You can think of platonic forms or the Hegelian ideal. And, and that's where the source of, um, of the rules has their bedrock and it's like, okay, don't pursue that line of reasoning because it's going to be turtles all the way down in that way too. And the source really becomes your own ego and you are, you are a foundation of sand. And so it's not going to satisfy. One last comment. Um, 
the angel ends up just leaving because the guy starts going. I, I like that when he mentions Jesus, the angel bows. And then he goes into this idea of that he didn't measure up to his full stature because he was killed too young. And what, what would he have brought had he not died so young? And, and it's just so blasphemous that the angel just he calls, leaves. He calls the crucifixion a, a tragedy. And you, yeah. can, you can see kind of the that attitude. But I mean, to you and I who the life and um, atonement of Christ is so holy that saying that it feels, it feels blasphemous, right? Yeah. And that the angel just couldn't hear it. Not that he wasn't open to it, but because it's such a false, dark blackness that takes away from everything that heaven itself represents. I almost like he was banished, like he had to retreat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tragic moment, but seeing that somebody could think that they would, you know, and I guess somebody who doesn't have that idea of the faith in Christianity, maybe that's like, seems silly and dogmatic. Um, but if, if you take out the foundation, you know, things will just start crumble, crumbling. There's an interesting moment before we get to the big man, when Lewis has this realization that he might be able to walk on water. Uh-huh. And to me, that's kind of a flipping of perspectives too, because obviously referencing Christ walking on the water, a more real yeah. being, having control over the elements of a more subjective world or whatever you want to call it, um, versus in this world where a ghost realized that even the water is so substantial, he probably could walk on top of it. I don't know. It plays into that perspective theme yeah. that you had. Yeah. I imagine the water could have walked on the ghost, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And the doesn't thing- it beat him up because it is moving even though it's solid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. So the big man and this character, you've kind of had, a, he was in the line. He's the guy who knocked out the guy next to him because he was, felt like he was talking down to him. And then in the bus, he also tells another guy to punch Lewis. And anyways, he meets this ghost who is apparently murdered somebody they both knew, Jack. And you, his immediate disgust that this angelic character who was a murderer is the one that's coming to talk to him. Yeah, I think he calls him Len, the, the angel's name. Um, I don't, I, I, it's hard to keep in, keep straight if there are any names. So I don't think we need to hold ourselves to that. But yeah, so this is in chapter four. We're go, going back because this is what the quoted text that we want to use is from. Um, but you see a lot of that same self-assuredness this, uh, from this big ghost. He's a man, man of principle is what he would call himself. And... Uh, he, he thinks of himself as being like from that, this very masculine type perspective, that, that negative virtue, like we were talking about in a couple episodes ago of, well, you know, I I get upset at my wife because she signs us up for too many service projects and things. And then she could get mad at me (laughs) because I'm too lazy to want to do, you know, and, and to me, my whole perspective of virtue is just leave people alone. Leave people alone, maybe they'll leave me alone too. And my wife's perspective of virtue is much more active. It's like, actually do a thing, don't just not do bad, do good, right? And so 
even intellectually, obviously, I think the weight and the, and the reality falls, uh, in her camp a little better than mine. Um, but you see, so you see in this big, in the big ghost, this very masculine type energy and ethos. Hmm. He asks the angel if he, isn't he ashamed? And the angel says no, says no. <laughs> because he had to forget himself in order to make the progress that he's made and be where, well, he's been forgiven go where he's gone. Yeah. He, he doesn't take himself more seriously than Jesus. Yeah. So if Jesus can forgive sin, who is he not to? right? He's, he's yielded. And that's part of this process. And this is where I love the perspective shift that this angel helps us experience, which is I almost like, like, don't be so arrogant as to not, as to think poorly of yourself almost, you know, he, he, who knows what this experience it's called murder. I'm not sure you know, we've seen in the, in other books, this idea, like, I think in, um, the last battle when all the animals and the dwarves are coming up to the door, the, the stable door, and some are going to Aslan's right. And some are going to his left. And one of the dwarves that was shooting the horses, these characters that while you're reading, you're like, they are the epitome of evil. I hate those dwarves, but one of them goes to Aslan's right. And it's like, what? You know, <laughs> he just yeah. notices it. So I think it's Lucy or, or maybe it's Ed or Eustace that notices it. Um, and it's like, wait, you mean the perspective of reality or people's motives? Everything's so subjective within our personal experiences relative to the objective reality um, that somebody like that could have actually been in a place where that is savable. Yeah. Well, so that's what's so shocking about all, that's what stood out to me about the angel's invitations to this, to the ghosts is it's so eternally open-ended to the point where they're like, forget about whatever we're talking about right now. Forget about whatever you're worried about. Just come with me. Yeah. We'll figure it out along the way. It'll be joy in the journey. Just if they would just humble themselves enough to get over themselves, just to start the journey it was wide open to them. That's right. And that's what's so, sh it's all, it's almost so open. It feels too open <laughs> for my, uh, my mortal perspective, I guess. Um, I would think it would be a little bit more closed than that. Like <laughs> that it would just be like, even though you're an apostate, if you'll just believe in me and come with me, it works out for you. Yeah. Our egos have their roots embedded in our past in that narrative of our past seems to be if, if that we can get over that. Um, and that doesn't mean not take responsibility of, of it, but yield, repent. And in that process of repentance and yielding, uh, maybe it will demand certain things of us, depending on, you know, what it means for us to change enough to accept the grace of Christ. Uh, so anyway, I think this is a good lead up in, in, into our section. So we'll just play that. And this comes from chapter four about um, midway through. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man. 
but I've got to have my rights, same as you, see? Oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours, either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I shall be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do, at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. I think it's easy to fall into cafeteria-style charity, that when we need the grace, we need other people to understand our side of the story, we, we want to pull it into our lives, but then when other people around us need that same charity and, and forgiveness, we can withhold it sometimes. I, I like that the ghost just invites him. No, ask for the bleeding charity. We all need it. <laughs> I love how direct the, the angel is. Just, no, you weren't decent. Yeah. We don't have our rights, and we're, that's in our, in our, to our advantage or in our benefit because we don't deserve what we're getting by our rights. And if you, the big ghost just keeps, has this idea, he has this narrative about himself and his character and what he deserves. And he thinks that that's what's important. And, and he doesn't, he, he's holding on so tight. He's like the dwarves in the last battle. So worried about being taken in that they can't be taken out of themselves. And so defensive trying to hold up your ego as being the source of, of all everything that you deserve. And he'll get that in hell. He'll get that everything that he deserves of his own merit. He'll be able to build houses that don't hold rain or that don't, don't protect from the rain. He'll be able to keep his distance and, and not, and leave everybody alone and they'll leave him alone too. Those that's all within his power, but joy isn't. And so until he yields to something bigger than himself, he might be a big ghost, but he's a ghost. And until he yields to the bleeding charity. And I see this in myself. I see this in interactions. Sometimes we think that, um, we don't want to be indebted to anybody. And as if we can really, as if we could realize that falsehood, that we don't need to be indebted to anybody. And I've seen people who are the beneficiaries of incredible bounty and gift and even just earthly bounty. And it's like, they're always on the defensive. And when I say they, I mean, me too, always on the defensive to try to prove that I somehow earned where I am. And it's just so, so obvious that I'm plucking the fruit of trees that I did not plant. And to some degree, Anybody who's capable of listening to this podcast is in that type of situation. Even if some people are experiencing less luck than others, there's always a perspective of seeing that what we have, our very lives and breath is not something that we earned, but are given. And you see that, you know, when, when Jesus, um, banishes the demons into the sw the herd of swine 
and they go run and drown themselves. It's like even the process of being in a, the body of a pig and experiencing the pain of drowning is preferable to nothing. And I think when we have that shift in perspective and realize everything that we have, even a body that might not be at full capacity, or we're experiencing a, a flu like I had last week, which just knocked me to the ground. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, that in those moments, not only is the bounty so much outweighing the pain of, you know, a week of sickness. But in the pain, I had this opportunity to show my true character. The cellar door was barged into and the rats were all there. And I got an experience to, in my peevish irritability of pain, really see where my character was. And hopefully I worked on it there. All of our negative, all of our troughs are opportunities. When our children are behaving poorly, we, we taught them better than that. And they should, they should know better and behave better. You could see that as a failure in your parenting, or you could see it as, oh, this is an opportunity for them to learn in this context, which is compelling them toward disobedience to help them learn in this type of context, how to manage that. And it makes parenting so much more of a hopeful and happy experience to see that difficult situation as an opportunity rather than some failure. And it switches when the angel gives the ghost a choice. Like you could come with me. And it's like, now that the ghost saw that he could, he has something, he has some power. He can he, threaten. He can reject something. And then he perks up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he mentions that his feet will never get hard enough to be able to walk on the grass and make the journey if he's rejecting that bleeding charity. That you're not going to be able to support the realness of heaven in your life if you haven't accepted the charity. And you, you see that with, uh, with maybe really type A personalities in a religious setting who they're trying to earn it by their checking every single box and it's just a crushing weight on their shoulders yeah. <laughs> versus accepting the bleeding charity and then let your obedience be something that flows out of you because of your love and gratitude for that charity that you're receiving. Yeah, I think that is important to identify that as these, I mean, hypothetically, as these ghosts, if they were to follow the angels back up the mountain, that they would get stronger, but not stronger because of their own merit. It's not like they're, come on, work it out. Keep trying to lift those leaves and st step on that grass really hard. And then you'll, your body will solidify. But as they let go of their ghostiness, then that's how the bleeding charity will start to, you know, fill substantiate their bodies leafy daggers on their ghosty feet <laughs> well thank you for being in our book club we hope you'll continue with us next week we are reading chapters 6 through 10 of the great divorce if you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub 
at mountainair.media.mtnair. Please subscribe, rate, or review on the podcast app. Yeah, thank you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>